What up, world? It's your past first point guard and Blazer beat writer Mike Richmond. You're listening to another episode of Locked On Blazers, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, available wherever you get podcasts. Today's episode is another edition of Mailbag Monday, a full episode answering listener-submitted questions. There's two ways to get involved in Mailbag Monday. One, Tweet at me whenever you're thinking of a question. My handle is at Mike G. Rich on Twitter. You send me a tweet. I'll see it. I'll save it. I'll answer it here. The other way is just the same way with a little more organization. On Monday mornings, West Coast time, I send out a tweet soliciting your questions. You respond to that tweet. Same deal. I'll save it and answer it on the podcast. So let's get into it. Without further ado, the first question comes from Logan Gillis at Logan Gillis on Twitter who asks, CJ McCollum looks like he's a natural-born PG out there, dropping dimes like a fat kid at Dairy Queen who just got his allowance. Does this raise his trade value for a team that might need a, be in need of a PG next year? Oh, sweet Blazer fans. CJ has a couple good games in a row and we're already trading him. Also, I like the um, dimes, fat kid and dimes metaphor in there. Um, not sure what Dairy Queens you go to, but you're going to need paper money, Logan. Um, I don't know. I don't think CJ's trade value is increased by having two good games. I think him playing well as a lead guard role is in some ways validating of his overall skill set and suggests that in a larger and different role, he could do something like this regularly. But he doesn't, he's, even in the game where he, he had a career high 12 assists, I'm, I don't, he didn't jump off the page as, as like a table setter. His pick and roll chemistry with Hassan Whiteside just isn't there. Um, he, he made plays. He played really well against the Detroit Pistons when he had 41 and 12. Uh, him and Carmelo Anthony have a real t- chemistry in the two-man game, but he's, um, he just had the ball in his hands a lot, and that helps you get assists in that offense. I don't think he looks like a natural point natural point guard necessarily. Uh, he certainly had a great game, no doubt about it. Uh, does it help his trade value, though? I kind of already answered that, but n- no. Uh, there's a ton of data out on CJ, and he kind of is what he is. Uh, I don't think a couple games really changes the, the calculation too much there. Uh, he, he's been really good. Uh, he certainly has been. There's no denying that he's been really good. But it's hard to fool uh, NBA GMs when they have another five seasons of data to sort of uh, judge CJ's abilities. All right, let's keep it rolling. Next question comes from Plenty Money at Paint and PDX on Twitter who asks, We've seen Dame at his best for stretches this season. Now we're seeing a version of CJ McCollum at his best as well. Why don't the two of them overlap better and have more truly dominant games from both players at the same time? Okay, a couple notes here. I think we're maybe like tipping the scales a little bit too much. Like the Blazers are really good like at their best because Damon CJ do play well. Um it's hard for any pair of teammates to both score 40 in any given night. But like what makes the Blazers special is that they have a 20-point scoring shooting guard alongside a 27-point scoring point guard. So 
I, I think I think we're moving the needle a little, moving the goalposts a little bit, maybe unfairly on this. But the obvious answer to your question is that they they just have a lot of overlap. It's hard for them to play a true sort of two man game, pick and roll and stuff because you can guard them with similar sized players. Um, they it's hard for them to sort of physically dominate a matchup. Anyone who, like a person who could guard CJ well could guard Dame well, and vice versa. Um, they're not, they're, neither of them are sort of the big time screeners to run just sort of basic pick and roll stuff, but they do play off each other pretty well. Like maybe they don't maximize each other's talents because they both need the ball in their hands. CJ likes to dance. Uh, Dame likes to just dominate the action a little bit and all those like things. They're both sort of ball dominant guys. So maybe that's it. But the idea so I, I guess the, the word that's doing a lot of work in your question is truly dominant. We don't see them have truly dominant games because it's it's just fairly rare for two teammates to score 30-plus a night. It just doesn't happen that often. Uh, it's hard f- if CJ has 41 and 12, it just means he had the ball in his hand so much. So it's a, a little thing called usage rate. His usage rate would be incredibly high, and by virtue of that, Damian Lillard would just have the ball less. He was doing less. Uh, so some of it is just skill set overlap. Some of it is just, uh, I think you're moving the goalposts a little bit. You also asked a follow-up question, Plenty Money, at Payton PDX. Still, with the next question that says, will we ever get a Dame CJ night where they both score combined 100 points in the same game? P- probably not. Uh, the most they've ever scored in a game together, 75 in game one of the opening round of the playoffs against the Golden State Warriors in 2017. Uh, spoiler, Blazers didn't win. They've had a, other big games where they both where they both have scored 30 plus. Uh, they've combined for 70 a handful of times. Uh, really helps when one of them scores 50. But um no, they're not going to get they're not going to get to 100 and they're not going to get to 100 together uh, unless one of them scores 85. And here's why. It's just very rare for that type of thing to happen. In the history of the NBA, the highest combined total where each player scores at least 30 points happened way back in 1983. Kiki Vandeweghe and Alex English on those Doug Moe Nuggets teams a game that went to three overtimes. Kiki had 51, Alex English had 47. They combined for 98. In that same game, Isaiah Thomas had 47 and John Long had 41 for the Detroit Pistons, combined for 88. George Gervin and Mike Mitchell for the Spurs combined for 95 back in 1982. That game also went to three overtimes. I mean, it's just uh, these things aren't aren't particularly common. Uh, the most sort of recent example, MJ and Scotty combined. MJ 44, Scotty 40 combined for 84 in the 90s. Um, it just doesn't happen that often. The most recent such example I could find was Reggie Miller had 40. Jalen Rose, 40. They combined for 80 back in the year 2000. It's the slowest era of basketball we've ever had. That was a big one. They beat the AI Sixers. But yeah, they're not going to combine for 100 uh, just because there's 48 minutes in the game. That's how it works. Okay, next question comes from HR. That's Archar FX on Twitter who asks, would CJ be an all-star if he was the number one guy on the team? 
on 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 this team, no, because the Blazers would be bad. Like they wouldn't be as good. So he's just just not as good as Damian Lillard. Um, if he was as good as Damian Lillard, it would be a different thing. Like it would just it you would it would be more debatable because you would there would be nights where sort of that where the dominance you saw against a really terrible Pistons team comes out. Now, don't get me wrong. He just had some incredible moments. Uh, he was fantastic. He won them that series against the uh, Denver Nuggets. He was he was their best offensive player by far, particularly late in games five, six, and seven in that series. Um, but he, the, the Blazers would be worse if CJ was the was the lead. Um, so I don't think they'd be. I don't think they. He would be an All Star because it's like a team team based award, team based reward, I should say. So no, I, I think he'd have a, a better chance because I think I think he could have more nights um, like he did against the Pistons. But I just don't think he's. Um, I just don't think he is that same sort of lock top 10 player in the league just waiting in the wings. Like, that's not what he is. He's one of the 50 or so, 60 best players in the NBA, but he's um, he's just not at Dame's level and the consistency that you would need to play at that level and be an all-star. He's just not a lock. Okay, next question comes from Jordan Poe at JordanPow456 on Twitter who asks... Who wins in a three-on-three game? CJ Nurk and Zach versus Dame Hassan and Trevor Ariza. I really like. I really like this question. Um, I think these are. I think these are fun teams. I'm going to lean. My gut says I'm says CJ Nurk and Zach. Um, three-on-three, I think, uh, gives a little more edge to just being. Big. Uh, I'm assuming you're playing half court here. Threes. Uh, full court would be first of all just a wild game of three on three. Uh, but it might prioritize. Um, it might prioritize Ariza's quickness a little more over Zach Collins. But I think if you're playing three on three half court, having two seven footers is really valuable. And uh, CJ's ability just to get a shot off against anyone will kind of negate how much better Dame is at sort of the holistic game of basketball than him. So I think it would be close. Um, Hassan would be really valuable in three-on-three because he doesn't have to cover as much ground, uh, kind of stays within his skills as a defender. Uh, Ariza probably has some quickness and ball handling advantage against Zach, but I'm going to go CJ's Nurk and Zach beat Dame, Hassan, and Ariza. If they played a 21, they beat him uh, 21-17, lose the second game, and then win game three, 23-21, and got to win by two. All right, second segment, we'll come back and answer more of your questions. But first, I want to tell you about Indeed. When you start your hiring process, you may have many questions. Will you find good applicants to choose from? What about education and experience? And how will you know you've made the right hire? Guess what? Indeed is here to help. Millions of great candidates use Indeed every day to find their next opportunity. You can post a job in minutes and use screener questions to help create your short list of applicants. And do it fast. You can also add a skills test to your job post so you can be confident in your applicants' abilities. 
Plus, and Dee's library of more than 50 skills tests range from industry-specific skills like accounting to general aptitude tests like critical thinking. Indeed gives you the smart tools to make hiring decisions quickly and be confident that you're making the right hire for your team. So, post your job today at Indeed.com slash LockedOn and get a free sponsored job upgrade on your first posting. That's Indeed.com slash LockedOn. Terms and conditions and exclusions apply. Offer valid through March 31st, 2020. All right, we're going to keep it rolling with Mailbag Monday, answering listener questions all episode long. And this next question comes from Sir Wheezy, at Wheezy Sir on Twitter, who says, Hassan Whiteside stated that he believes he's the defensive player of the year. Many Blazers faithful believe that he has a case to be made, given his absurd stat lines. What say you? Man, Sir Wheezy, here's what I say. Look, Hassan Whiteside leads the NBA in block shots. He leads the NBA in total blocks. He was really good down the stretch to help the Blazers stave off what would have been a catastrophic loss to the Detroit Pistons. He has incredibly gaudy stat lines. He's a legend in the box score. But the baseline for being defensive player of the year has to be not one of the five worst defenses in the NBA. You cannot be a member of one of the bottom five defenses in the league and be in the consideration for defensive player of the year. Uh, Hassan Whiteside is the Blazers' best and most important defensive player. He is by far of all the bigs on the roster and all their options, their best defender. Um, they need him every night to play well. But the idea that he's Defensive Player of the Year is wild, um, not just because of sort of his obvious shortcomings on defense, but just because of the team stuff. Like, they're not a good defensive team. You can't reward someone who blocks a bunch of shots on a bad defensive team. That's not what the Defensive Player of the Year is. And because this is my podcast, the next question is related. Russian bot Pete Normal at Bob underscore Deeger on Twitter asks, At my sixth graders basketball games, I often yell arms up when she's defending the paint. She listens and plays better defense because of it. Is there anyone in the Blazers organization who Hassan Whiteside would listen to if they yelled that at him? I think he could use the reminders. Yeah, um, this is one of my complaints with Hassan Whiteside is that he um, sometimes gets caught in sort of in between not contesting a shot, but not quite up to block it. So he's just kind of in space and not being really big. And one of his great values on the court is that he's very, very big all the time. Uh, I think I understand why people think or are excited about us on white side um, and can get excited about us on white side. He just does. Um, he makes meaningful plays around the rim. He blocks shots. He does stuff like that. Uh, I just, for me, I guess my beef is that uh, it is without great consistency. And I guess my, I guess my most sort of pointed critique of Hassan's game is this: uh, there's this sort of cliche that. He, uh, when you talk about NBA players or basketball players in general, it's it's he does a lot of stuff that doesn't show up in the box score. And I would argue that Hassan Whiteside only does stuff that shows up in the box score. It is very rare to me, with my own eyes, that I see him make what I would call just a great play that is not like statistically trackable. Usually his awesome plays are him snatching a rebound in traffic or ripping it out of someone's hands or making a great block to save the game's th- 
just swatting Derrick Rose's layup like he did on Sunday night. He just has his, my most pointed critique is that he only does well on things you can track. There aren't, there aren't these sort of little, he doesn't do the small things that make really good players great. Um, I didn't answer Bob Deeger's question at all. So is there someone in the organization who could do that? Uh, maybe Dale Osborne, Blazers assistant coach who helps uh, run the defense along with Nate Tibbetts. Uh, Dale is usually not very animated, but when he gets excited about something, you'll see him stand up with his clipboard and yell a lot. So I think that'd be a great job for Dale. Coach Oz, get out there. Next question comes from Matthew at Reverend Romulus on Twitter, who asks, both Christian Wood and Hassan Whiteside had great stats last night in a game where really either team could have won. Which player is a bigger example of bad player feasting on a bad team? Yeah, that this is a really, really difficult question for me. Not because I think um, Hassan Whiteside is, is specifically a... Um, good stats, bad team guy. I think he's more of a good stats, mediocre team guy because he's just like good enough and effective enough to sort of drag a team to being average or whatever, like the league average. Um, and and Christian Wood is is not that. Christian Wood is like a good player who deserves more chance. Um, I'm, a, I'm, I'm a fan of his game. I'll just, I'll put it out there. Uh, really, really liked um, the Christian Wood experience on Sunday. So... If you mean like in in like the totality of their careers, it's definitely Hassan because Christian Wood just like hasn't had a chance to be someone who's like an accumulator on a bad team. But if you're just talking about Sunday night, um, it's Christian Wood, right? Because he came off the bench for a team where he should start, but for whatever reason they chose not to start him. And he put up 26 and he was and they ended up losing. I, I don't know. This is this is. Matthew, Reverend, dear Reverend, you've stumped me with this question. I do not have a good answer. Okay, one more question in this segment. This one comes from Hassan Whiteside's burner account at JustinP1111 on Twitter who asks, it's actually two tweets, but I made them into one. What do you think the Blazers will do with their 15th roster spot? If there are active players in the buyout market, who do you think is a realistic addition to the roster? I really like Kenneth Freed and think he'd be a welcome addition, adding energy off the bench. Is he a better backup than Nazir Little, Caleb Swanigan, and Caleb, and excuse me, and Wenyan Gabriel? And if so, what are the odds the Blazers take a chance on him? The odds are zero because the Blazers aren't going to do anything with that 15th roster spot. They have made it fairly clear with their decisions over the last two and a half months that they are prioritizing being a little bit cheaper and trying to get to the playoffs with the crew they have. Uh, additionally, I think there's some hope that Yusuf Nurkic and Zach Collins return to the lineup some point by the end of March. So they're not going to add a guy who then they bury. Additionally, the buyout market isn't very good for teams like the Blazers because they're not good. And t- and guys who are getting bought out of contracts typically want to either be go to a place where they're guaranteed to play. Blazers have a starting lineup intact. There's no one who, who could really crack that who would join from the buyout market or have a chance to win a championship. Uh, th- the Blazers aren't that, unfortunately. Um, so what they're going to do with the 15th roster spot is nothing. Uh, they're not going to add Kenneth Freed. Um, is Kenneth Freed better than Nazir Little, Caleb Swanigan, and Wenyan Gabriel? I'm, I mean, probably, right? He's, he's not better for the team than Nazir Little because Nazir Little is a 20-year-old um, and Freed is, is a vet. Uh, 
you just they'd rather have a younger player with higher upside. He's probably better than Swanigan, although Swanigan can guard fives a little bit better than Freed can. Freed's not much of a defender, and he's almost certainly better than Wenyan Gabriel. But Wenyan Gabriel's so long and he plays so hard. Um, if you're looking, if you'd if you want energy off the bench of your squad, just look, just watch Wenyan and Caleb play. They do that. Nazir Little does that. Uh, I don't think Freed would be. I think he'd be a marginal upgrade. Uh, sorry that you like him. I think I kind of blasted him a little bit. He's he's perfectly good. He's just um, he doesn't seem like he would change the roster very much, and he's been out of the league for almost a full year. All right, coming back in the third segment, closing out the show with more of your questions. Mailbag Monday still rolling. All right, still pass first point guard. Still Mailbag Monday. I'm still Mike Richmond. Let's keep it rolling with more of your questions. This next one comes from Rose Garden Degenerate at Rose Garden Degen on Twitter who asked, there's a lot of negative noise on Mario Hazonia. I feel like it's unwarranted, especially since the players are aware of how they're performing. How much do you think that negative noise from the fans affects a player's ability to improve? What's done to help them drown it out? So I don't know if the team does like specific things to help guys dry it out. Um, certainly, uh, it's it's a well known thing. Like guys, just like you know, don't 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 check your mentions on Twitter. But all these dudes are addicted to their phones, glued to their phones in the locker room. They definitely see it. Um, but I don't I don't know if there's like a team thing that's specifically to help them drown it out. Uh, does it does it affect a, a guy's ability to improve? I think that plans depends player to player. Some people probably um, kind of bask a little bit in the criticism and 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 really use it as motivation. Other people um, are probably really upset by it. I think um, just examples as Kevin Durant seemed to be someone who's pretty upset by. Um, people on the internet being mean to him. I think for at least some point in his career, Myers Leonard was um, a little bit upset or thrown off by um, the hatred he consistently got from fans on, on social media. It certainly affects these people. They're humans. I think that's a very, a rather poignant point from someone who goes by Rose Garden Degenerate to remind us that these basketball players are indeed humans. Um, so yeah, I think... I don't know how much it affects like players generally. I think it can affect people. I think other people, it doesn't affect them as much. Um, do you feel it's unwarranted? Yeah, I would probably agree with you, but also that's kind of the nature of fandom. We're not going to change it. You or I, Rose Garden Degenerate. Um, and just in general, I kind of know who you're talking about here in like the media sphere. And there are some people who their thing in order to be part of the conversation is to be mean to players who they know they'll never have to interact with. It's just like the shitty part of, of, of this work. Um, if you don't have to do interviews and see these guys face to face, you feel empowered to be a jerk online. That happens. Uh, certainly happens in the Portland market. I see it every day. Next question comes from Jeff Gold. That's jgold10529 Jeff on Twitter. jgold really breaking the Twitter handle conventions by going with Jeff at the end there. I love it. And Jeff asks, how good could we be next year with what we saw last night as our bench mob run by CJ, Mello, Ariza, Hassan Whiteside, and Gary Trent Jr.? Yeah, so I, I think I may have read the question wrong. This is like Mello, Ariza, Whiteside, Gary Trent would come off the bench and and CJ would run the show. 
as as the de facto backup point guard. Uh, I think that would be a pretty good pretty good crew. Um, I can't imagine all of those dudes being back. I'm pretty sure Trevor Reza will be back. Mello is really iffy, and if he wants to start, it becomes very unlikely that he's back. Hassan Whiteside's kind of same deal. I could see him. Actually, I don't really see him resigning. I know that that's like a, a thing people are floating around, but I think it's highly, highly unlikely that Hassan resigns. I think Gary Trent Jr. is going to be a big part of the bench group. Um, they're going to have to find other parts. How good would they be? That would be on the deeper side of what they've been. That would probably be like they were um, last season where they had real real options off the bench. Rodney Hood and Seth Curry. Ennis Cantor, Zach Collins, like real NBA players coming off the bench. Um, it's a really valuable thing to have nine or ten NBA players on the roster, not just six or whatever they have now. Um, they would be a 55-win team with that group, Jeff. And I'll put a I'll put a, a pin on that one. 55 wins. Next question comes from Victor So at Gopher So on Twitter, who asks: Assuming we miss the playoffs and pick around 15, what position do we draft? Backup point guard. Listen, I'm not going to play the Hell Nah song again, but uh, Victor, I I want to. Imagine that I just took nine seconds of your life to play Hell Nah. Um, no, like, why would they draft a backup point guard? I know that they don't have that position on the roster, but CJ McCollum and Damian Lord are going to play 36 minutes a night. The team is incredibly committed to Anthony Simons, and Gary Trent Jr. has had a breakout last six weeks. Why on earth would they add another guard to this group? And why would they add another young guard to this group? What? They just, they need forwards. They need forwards. They don't have any forwards on the roster. They have no, like, they traded all those dudes away. They didn't, they didn't really add them any back. They play Gary Trent at the three. They play Anthony Simons next to Damon CJ when healthy. They just need forwards. They need wings. They need wings, Victor. Um, That means they're going to draft a backup point guard. You're 100% correct. Next question comes from Adam Levine, Adam J. Levine on Twitter, who asks, is Yusuf Nurkic a top five center in the league when healthy? At first I said no, but then I started thinking I struggled to come up with five better than him. Nikola Jokic is better than Yusuf Nurkic. Joel Embiid is better than Yusuf Nurkic. Carl Anthony Towns is better than Yusuf Nurkic. Rudy Gobert is better than Yusuf Nurkic. Then it gets a little bit dicey. Is LaMarcus Aldridge a center? He plays center for the Spurs. I think he's a center. He's better than Yusuf. What position do we think Anthony Davis plays? I know that he starts at power forward, but he plays about a third of his minutes at center, maybe more, maybe like 40% of his minutes at center when uh, JaVale McGee and Dwight Howard are on the bench in those in the middle quarters when it's like Anthony Davis in the bench mob. He, he's definitely better than Yusuf Nurkic. But then after that, there's kind of a, there's kind of a stretch of guys that I think Nurk is either better than at his best or definitely better than Nikola Vucevic, Brooke Lopez, Andre Drummond. Like I, he, I think he's better than those dudes, right? Clint Capella. I think he's better than him. Uh, I think a lot of you are super pissed that I said that he's, that Rudy Gobert is like hands down unquestionably better than Yusuf Nurkic. I believe that, but I bet many of you listening at home don't and think that I'm a big dumb dummy. So yeah, I would say at worst, Yusuf is like the eighth best center in the NBA, and you can make a compelling case, particularly depending on what position Anthony Davis plays, that he's the fifth best center in the league when healthy and ready to go. 
That is a surprising thing, Adam. I probably wouldn't have said that. I would have said top 10 easy. I think one of the things compounding my issue with this question is that we don't know what Yusuf Nurkic is going to be like when he returns. When he was healthy, he was fantastic. He was one of the 30 best players in the NBA. He was so, so, so good. And he was young. This was the best he was the best he had played, you know, heading into his 25th year, his physical prime. Um, yeah, it's it's a bummer and, and it makes judging sort of where he ranks in the league difficult because we just don't know what he's going to look like. Uh, but Adam, good point. He's certainly among the best at his position. This next one comes from Dalton Schuster at Dalton Schuster 2 on Twitter who asks, Trade Machine, noting that Trade Machine is my favorite, before proposing a trade. Brooklyn has too many wings for next year, and Dalton says, offers this trade idea. CJ McCollum and a first-round pick for Joe Harris, Spencer Dinwiddie, or Karis LeVert. Who says no? Thoughts on the trade? My thoughts are that Brooklyn is getting the best player in that deal. Spencer Dinwiddie is just um, a not-as-good... He brings a not-as-good version, like a score-first two not as good version of CJ McCollum. Joe Harris is a really good shooting wing, but I, by far the 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 uh, Brooklyn, not by far, but Brooklyn is clearly getting the best player in the deal, and you're giving up a first. And I don't think that works under the CBA. Like I don't think I I don't think Harris and Dinwiddie combined to make enough money. So I think that means the deal would have to be Karis Levert and Spencer Dinwiddie, and I still don't think that that makes the Blazers better and certainly giving up a first... I'm not super excited about giving up a first-round pick for guys that are under contract for a couple years and are probably not better than C.J. McCollum or maybe like the combination of them isn't even better than C.J. McCollum. I think the the people who say no are the league office and then the Trailblazers in that order. Uh, real quick, Dalton has one more that I'll entertain because I don't like Trade Machine, but I do love my dear listeners. Dalton proposes CJ McCollum and Zach Collins for Buddy Heald and Marvin Bagley. Both both Blazers are better than both Kings here. I hate this trade. Uh, CJ McCollum is just a better version of Buddy Heald, and Zach Collins is, while not a star by any means, um, and Bagley's had some good moments, but he can't stay healthy. He's, he's going to end up playing just 13 games in year two. Uh, Collins might end up playing two and a half games in his third season. So, um, you know, uh, but in any case, I, I just think Zach Collins is better than Marvin Bagley um, right now. And maybe going into the future, Bagley probably has more star talent. Uh, and CJ McCollum is a lot better than Buddy Heald. And Buddy Heald just signed a max. I hate this trade for the Blazers. So they're going to say no to this one, too. Okay, next question comes from Blake Bataro at Ball Don't Lie 77 on Twitter, who asks, with DeMarcus Cousins being waived by the Lakers, is he worth a look in the offseason to sign for next year in case we don't slash can't keep us on Whiteside? Don't Boogie and Nurk have the same agent? I know we made a run at him in the past and wondered if he'd still be an asset. I can't imagine, Blake, that you're brave enough to have watched this season with all these injuries and want to bring back bring in DeMarcus Cousins, who has basically lost two full years due to injuries and is a just like maybe someone who, who, who won't be healthy again, just based on his really, really tough track record with an Achilles and then the quad injury and then the ACL all on the same side of his body. I just, I, I think Cousins is a huge question mark in, in terms of health. And I can't imagine, um, the Blazers wanting to take more risks with health with big men not being healthy. That seems like a um, 
a dangerous path for them to, to navigate again. Uh, another thing, them having the same agent, I think, makes it less likely that they would join the same team. Agents usually don't want to put guys um, where they're competing for playing time. Um, that's Obviously, it happens because of the way, you know, there's only 450 jobs. But in general, uh, you would want to move your clients that play the exact same position and would be competing for the exact same minutes into different spots. Um yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm out on Boogie. I'm out, I'm out on Boogie. I think he, I, it's really sad what's happened to him. I think he was a really special talent, put in a weird situation, and he's probably cost himself like $200 million over the last two years um, just, just with unfortunate injury timing. It's a real bummer. Um, hope he gets right and is a, a force again. Uh, I just can't imagine it happening in the Pacific Northwest. Okay, next question comes... From just blazing at Justin underscore B underscore leak on Twitter who asks, if you were a time traveler and you could alter the space-time continuum and change the future with a single action so the Blazers would win a title, but for some sad reason it would also cause the NBA to dissolve completely next morning, would you do it? Yeah, cue the hell not music. I would not do that. I While I enjoy the Blazers and certainly appreciate their fans a great deal, I don't have any emotional connection to them. Um, not in sort of the sort of braggy, I'm a media member and I don't emotionally connected. Like, I don't. I just don't. I can't. I don't feel. I'm, I'm around the team too much. Um, I'm not a local. I didn't grow up rooting for them. I certainly enjoyed them in, in my youth, but I, it wasn't uh, a part of my young fandom. And uh, no, I would not. Um, I like the NBA too much to get rid of it. I want to watch all the teams, not just the Blazers. I want to watch good. In the words of Kevin Calabro when he first came here, I love good hoop. I would probably call it hoops, but uh, Ke- <laughs> KC called it hoop. I love good hoop. I love and. Um, so yeah, I'm not I'm not altering the space-time continuum and getting rid of the NBA. That seems like a mistake. Final question comes from Andy Hawkins at AHawk80, who asks Has a team officially contested the missed goaltend at the end of the Utah game? If so, what would stop the league from replaying the final seconds before the rematch on April 2nd. Uh, the league's not going to replay that game because the rules were applied correctly. It wasn't a misapplication of the rule. It was just a huge missed call. The other thing is the league is just not in the business of replaying games. Um, I answered this one last because like replaying games is in the news. The Dallas Mavericks are trying to get the league to replay uh, the final nine seconds of a game that they lost to the Atlanta Hawks. It's been that that happened this week that happened on Friday, I believe, um, or last week rather, but it's um, the league just isn't in the business of, of replaying these games. You can, you can protest all you want. I don't believe the Blazers filed a former formal protest and asking for a replay or, or, or a grievance of the game. I think they just said, you screwed it up. You guys cost us a chance to win the game. We'll keep it moving. They were pissed. Um, they said their part, particularly Dame and CJ said they got their words in, did not get fined by the league because the league knew they blew it. And that was that. Um, it's really interesting coming down the stretch, how much a game like that could matter. But 
the Blazers will have a chance to control their own destiny to some extent. They still play the Memphis Grizzlies twice. They might get passed up by the Pelicans, but nothing they can do about it. But the team that's directly in front of them, they play them twice. They can, If the Blazers are going to make the playoffs, they have 24 games left to make it happen. That game in Utah was a bummer. Um, certainly, there's no guarantee that if they count that basket like they absolutely should have, that the Blazers win. But it was um, a really awful way to end a basketball game. As someone who recently said that he likes good hoop, it's just um, it wasn't good hoop. It was just a it was just a crap way to end the game. But uh, Andy, I don't think it's gonna happen. All right, that's gonna do it for Mailbag Monday. I really appreciate all of you who contributed, and I appreciate all of you who listen along without contributing. You're equally important. That's how we do it here. We're a community, whether you tweet me questions or whether you just listen regularly. And whether you are an active or passive participant, do me a favor and tell your friends about this podcast. They can find it wherever they already get podcasts. Appreciate you listening. I'll talk to you soon.